And please turn in your Bibles to the little book of Jonah once again. We'll be looking at Jonah chapter 3. Resuming the uh, narrative of the uh, book of Jonah after Jonah's prayer. And we'll find the uh, plot move uh, rather quickly in this little chapter. So there's a lot of truth here for us to meditate on. Let's uh, hear together uh, the word of the Lord to us this day. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Rise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent, turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Well, you notice as we begin this text, probably, the similarity between the beginning of chapter 3 here and the beginning of the book. If you flip back to uh, chapter 1, verse verse, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me the words in the beginning of chapter 3 are very similar, aren't they? Maybe, uh, maybe the first thing we can notice in this is that the Lord's sovereign will will not be thwarted. The sovereignty of the Lord is a, is a dominant theme in this book. You see it underscored here. He will accomplish his purposes. And so, from a human perspective, John is given a second opportunity to obey. Now, of course, from a human perspective, in no way does he deserve this, right? He, he, he doesn't merit the second opportunity. God would be entirely justified to have cast him aside and chosen some totally different means to accomplish And in his grace, he's giving Jonah a second 
opportunity to obey. The Lord ever given you a second opportunity to obey? Have you ever been guilty? Disobeying the Lord? He gave you a second opportunity to obey him. And a third. And a fourth. And on and on. Don't slight the goodness of God. Giving you opportunities to obey him. Don't let Satan tell you why you've disobeyed him too many times is past, past doing. Don't buy that lie. Every day gives you an opportunity to be obedient to the Lord. And perhaps to be used by Him in a mighty way. That's what He's doing for Jonah. So Jonah responds this time with obedience. And he does what the Lord told him to do. He gets up and he goes. Uh, not, a, not a short trip. Okay, this is many miles to the north and east of the coastline where Jonah would have been deposited. So he's got to walk a long way, but the, the narrative doesn't, doesn't give us an extended explanation here. Uh, we're left perhaps to ourselves to maybe maybe mull over in our own minds. What do you think is going through his head during all those miles as he walks all those miles to Nedevah? Reflects upon his experience. Well, he gets there. And we're given again a description of Nineveh. We had that at the beginning of the book too, didn't we? You were told Nineveh is a great city. Great is one of the key words that keeps coming up over and over again uh, in the book of Jonah. In our text later on when it talks about the king and his nobles, literally it says the king is great one. And we read about a great storm and a great fish or sea creature. So great is sort of a, a theme here. And the second time we've been told that Nineveh is a great city. We're told in, in verse 2, in God's words to Jonah. And then we're told as a part of the narration in verse 3. My translation has now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Literally, the text says, Nineveh was a great city to God. Translators aren't sure exactly what to do with that to God expression. And so one way of handling that is to think that that's sort of a, a, way, a Hebraic way of, of stating the superlative, okay? Uh, I, I admit there may be a little bit of truth to that, but I, but I want you to know that the text says, Nineveh is a great city to God. I think the text is telling us something there. That God has a plan for those people, pagan as they are. Pagan as they are. It's a big place. 
literally the uh, text says it's a walk of three days and uh, seems that that's not doesn't have in view the walled city of ancient Nineveh itself on the side of the city we know in Iraq as Mosul uh, that walled city is smaller than this is described some people think well maybe maybe it has to do with the environs of Nineveh which would make sense walled cities of this kind would would sort of be like urban areas with a lot of suburbs around. Okay, so you've got the walled city where the wealthy people live, where the king lives, where the government functions, where the marketplace is, but you've got all this outlying area of villages and houses and farms and so forth, and so, so probably that's in view here. It's a large urban area in its day and this day probably the most significant city in the Middle East and so Jonah begins to go in and he's barely in right we are told that it's a it taken three days to walk it and his first day in he's preaching and his response couple of things to be noted, perhaps, about uh, verse 4 there. Jonah's message is summarized as 40 days more and Nineveh is overthrown. Just a very brief statement. But it's probably the case that this is a summary of his message. We can imply that from certain other things, such as the reference to God by the people later on. Obviously, Jonah must have said this is a word from God as they speak of God later. They mention, the king mentions in his edict their evil ways, and we see humbling going on, so it must have been the, you know, there was some kind of explanation by Jonas of why it was going to be overthrown. It's because of the evil of the city. But this is a good summary. This summarizes the, the main theme, just as preaching of John the baptizer was summarized as repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he said, a, he said other things, including saying the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Judgment is imminent. Don't forget that's part of that message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's not saying happy days are coming. Not hitting happy days are here again. Saying you better watch out. You better be ready because the king is coming. And the king isn't going to be real happy with you. He's already ready to chop down the trees. Okay, that's what's envisioned here. The scripture sp speaks of this sometimes as the day of the Lord. Okay, it could have been that Jonah used that might have used that expression because it's common in the prophets. The day of the Lord is coming, they said. And the day of the Lord was a day of judgment. The prophet said, you're not ready for the day of the Lord. On one occasion, one of the prophets says, I hear you talking about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord all the time. And you act like you think it's a good thing. It's not a good thing. He's coming to judge you. You're not ready. And so, sort of the negative message, right? 
You got 40 days. What would be your response if you need to add 40 days? You got 40 days to live. I don't know why it's become popular for people to talk about bucket lists. In 40 days, oh, I'm going to accomplish my bucket list. What a fool. If I had 40 days left to live, I would not be thinking about Earth, be to honest. I would be anticipating the glories of heaven to which the most glorious thing on Earth makes no comparison. They're told they have 40 days, and look at the response. You need to be amazed by this. Most of the Old Testament prophets, the vast majority of the Old Testament prophets get nowhere with their message. Isaiah reportedly is sawn in two because of his preaching. Jeremiah, an old man, is cast down into a cistern, would have died there except for a, an African servant of the king who pulled him up out and saved his life. Prophets are abused. They're ignored. They're persecuted. With the exception of Jonah. Jonah preaches, evidently, less than a day, and revival breaks out. Revival. How else, how else is he going to interpret this? Okay. I mean, look at it, verse 5. We're given his message in verse 4. Very next thing, the people of Nineveh believe God. You could theoretically translate that belief in God. It's, it's that kind of an expression. But I think believe God gets more to the point here. They believe God. Now, what does that imply? Well, that implies, for one thing, that they think Jonah is speaking the word of God. Right? doesn't say they believe Jonah. They believe God. Somehow, these people were touched with the reality this man is actually speaking for God, the Creator. And they believe Him. They put their faith in Him. Same word, believe, faith. They believe God. This is astounding. God's own people didn't believe the word of God through the prophets. And here are a pagan people totally decadent lifestyle, history of violence, greed, abuse, and yet suddenly we find they believe God. Well, what do they do because they believe God? They call a fast. They call a fast, put on sackcloth. Sack, by the way, is one of the few words that we get in English out of the Hebrew. 
they put on sacks. Okay, literally what the what the Hebrew says. We get we get our word sack from this word. That rough, coarse material. I remember reading the uh, autobiography of uh, Booker T. Washington, and he talks about. In, when he was a child, he, he was still slaves. His family was still slaves, and and, uh, and so they had next to nothing, of course. And the only clothing they had to to wear was made out of flax, which is extremely itchy and scratchy when it's first made into into cloth in the rough way, the primitive way that they used. And he says his older brother would would wear the shirt first to to take off some of the roughness and, and then give it down to his older brother so it wouldn't be so uncomfortable, painful for him. Sackcloth is this rough rough material. Why are they wearing sackcloth? Why why are they fasting? Well, this is the way that they're expressing humility. This is the this is the way you grieve in the Old Testament. Okay, you, you rip your clothing. Clothing is extremely valuable in this culture. Many people would only have one good robe. So it's a sign of incredible grief when you rip that robe. And then you put on sackcloth and then you fast. You're showing grief for the death of a loved one. For some great tragedy that's befallen your town or your land okay so you see what they're saying symbolically with this they're grieving for their sin that's what's in view here we, we could there, there are a number of examples in, in scripture of people doing this I won't take time to go to those but you can look them up yourself uh, later on You see the connection with their believing God here? They're believing God in what he says about their sin. It hadn't bothered them at all before this. They were just going on their own way, doing their own thing. But the word of God revealing their sin... It's touched their hearts somehow. And they're agreeing with him. They're in effect saying, yes, my sinful condition is, is terrible. It's a grief. I deserve it. They, they could have echoed the words of David in Psalm 51, against you, speaking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, David's not saying his sin never hurt anybody else. But he's saying, when I think of my sin, the worst part of it is that I've sinned against you, a holy God. And you are justified in condemning me. That's what he's saying there. You are blameless 
in your judgment. You have told me of my sin, and you are entirely justified. They're not making excuses. People are not saying, well, it's the government's fault. They're not blaming other people. They're saying, we're guilty. Okay, are you following the progression here? Believing God's message, humbling yourself before him, agreeing with him concerning your sin. And evidently, this is widespread from the greatest of them, there's over a great again, from the greatest to the least. This is a grassroots revival. Grassroots revival, and now the word reaches the king of Nineveh. And lo and behold, he does the same thing. He gets up, same word, by the way, that God said to Jonah, get up, go. The king gets up and comes down. He gets off his throne. Removes his robe, covers himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes. There's another way that you show grief in mourning. And he issues, along with his nobles, a proclamation. Down to verse 7 now. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Fasting is the order of the day for the animals as well as people. And in fact, verse 8, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And we look at that and think, that's really stupid, isn't it? The animals. You know, I, I may not be right in this, but I, 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 think it's, I think it's acknowledging reality for them. The destruction of the city would mean the destruction of the city. It would mean the animals, too. Paul tells us in Romans that all of creation groans under the weight of sin. Even the animals suffer because of human sin. And it's almost like these people are saying, well, our animals are in it with us too. We care about them. At the end of the book, God's going to say he cares about the animals. So I think they're right to See, this is a corporate thing, that it's, it's something that should involve everyone, even their animals. But it goes further than that. We stay in verse 8 for the last part there. We had believing God, agreeing with him concerning our sin. That's what all the mourning is about, agreeing with God. Now let everyone turn from his evil way. And from the violence that in his, is in his hands. And that, that's an, ex, an imagery there. That's an expression of, of those, those wrong things that you are doing. So don't just think it's, it's just talking about murder or something like that. The word is, is broader in meaning than that. There, he's saying 
everyone turn from the way you're living. Stop doing the wicked stuff that you're doing. Believe, agree with God concerning your sin, and repent. Turn. Have a change of mind. That's what that word repentance means. Change your mind. The way you think is going to govern how you act. So this call for turning from your way of life happens in the mind and the heart. Okay? You have to think a different way. And notice how he summarizes their condition. Who knows? God may turn and relent. Say the word is the same as repent. And turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. He cast himself and his people on the mercy of God. He does not say, now we've done this, God, so you're obligated to forgive us. H.L. Mencken said, God has to forgive, it's his job. No, he doesn't. It is not a holy God does not have to overlook sin. That's at least part of what this king is saying. I know God is not obligated to withhold punishment from us. We deserve it fully. We deserve it fully. True humility, true repentance does not view God is obligated in any way. Just because you walk down an aisle and sign a card doesn't mean God's obligated to you in any fashion whatsoever. But, but, you, you see the hope here too, don't you? God may, may repent. He may relent. He may turn away from his fierce anger. There's just the possibility that he'll do that. Of course, Jonah's known that from the beginning. <laughs> okay. We'll look at that in more detail coming up. We're getting what we deserve, but God may, may relent. Uh, there's, there's a little difficulty with that expression, isn't there? We, we, we don't really like to hear, hear it talking of God repenting, turning. So we should think about that just for a minute. 
God remains the same. God's no different. The end of the book is he is at the beginning. God is a holy and righteous God. But the people have changed, right? God acknowledges that. Look there in verse 10. God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. Now, he knows they turned, okay? We don't know exactly what's going on in their heads, but he sees something there. Divine sight. Sees that they turn from their evil way. God hasn't changed. He's still the just judge that he always has been. But because of the Ninevites' repentance, he suspended, he repented or relented. Here's the verb in our text. From the punishment that he had said he would do as a just judgment of the evil they had done. Notice the lex talonis here. The, the punishment fits the crime exactly. Okay? They've done evil. They will receive evil. Same word is used in the text. It's translated disaster in a lot of the modern translations. But it's the same word. And I think that's telling us something. It justice demands that they receive punishment. But they have changed. They have turned. And so because they have turned, their relationship with God has changed. And so it's not that he's changed, it's that that they responded to his message. And of course, we, we, we knew from the beginning this was what, what God's message was meant to lead to. Right? It was meant to lead to repentance. The prophet Ezekiel rebukes the people of Israel for missing this, for ignoring this truth on one occasion. He's come preaching judgment. And they said, oh, well, if we're going to get judged, I guess there's nothing we can do. We'll just rot away in our sin. Ezekiel says, inspired by God, Thus you have said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Okay, that's what they're saying. Say to them, God says to Ezekiel, As I live, declares the Lord God. That, that's making as strong a statement as possible. That's God swearing by himself right there. As I live, declares the Lord God, literally Lord Yahweh. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? You're misconstruing the message, Ezekiel is saying, inspired by God. God sent you this word of judgment to bring you to repentance, not to have you just wallow in your sin. And so he goes on to say, speaking again for God, Though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, 
not doing injustice, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Jonah knows this. In the next chapter, he's going to say to God, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, relenting from evil. How does Jonah know that? He's quoting God himself out of Exodus. In Exodus 34, that incredible experience that Moses has when God, God reveals himself in a very unique way in response to, to Moses' request that he sees his face. God, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When you hear a word of judgment from the Lord, when the Lord convicts you through his word, he is not doing that so that you throw up your hands in despair. He is doing it so that you will come to him in repentance and receive his forgiveness. That, that's why the psalmist says that he was chastened by the Lord and it was good for him. If you're a child of the Heavenly Father, you're going to be continually growing in your understanding of who he is and your understanding of who you are. And that means you're going to live a life of repentance. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, writes, The faithful ought through their whole life to repent. For except every one of us continually strives to renounce himself in his former life, he has not yet learned what it is to serve God. For we must ever contend with the flesh. I quoted in my newsletter that I sent out before this service the the first of the 95 topics for debate that Martin Luther put up on October 31st, 1517. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Let's sum up. When you think about repentance, remember, it's a demand not an invitation. Jesus did come saying, if your life is really empty, I want to fill it for you. He came saying, repent. That's an imperative. He didn't say, will you please, please accept me. He revealed himself as the king. Repentance is a demand in the sovereignty of God. Every moment you live as a Christian, you have the opportunity 
to obey that command. To please your Lord. Notice another thing from this passage. The Lord brings about the repentance that he ordains to the most unlikely of people. If you're thinking, I'm not the kind of person the Lord forgives, think about the Ninevites. They would have been the last people on earth that an Israelite would have thought would be graced with repentance. The Lord brings unlikely people to repentance. He draws sinners to himself. Well, before we leave, we have to answer the question that I asked the young people in my class. I say, before you leave any time, text in the Old Testament, you gotta, you got to look for something. What do you have to look for? Jesus. Where's Jesus in this text? Not overtly here, right? Well, let me... Let me help you see Jesus here by asking another question. How can a holy God withhold judgment on a wicked people? The Ninevites have repented. They've turned from their evil ways. But what about all the evil ways they did already? They, they've done it. If you repent, does it undo any of your sins? Does your repentance somehow erase time so that all the wrong you've done in the past is sort of obliterated? Can you actually have the gall to think that your act of repentance somehow outweighs all your past wickedness? How on earth can God forgive these people? They're wicked, they're violent. They've lived evilly. How can God be just and the justifier of sinners? And you know the answer. It is because Jesus Christ has taken the sins of his people upon himself. He who is absolutely holy and pure has taken all the filthiness of mind, all the wickedness of thought, all the evilness of deed that his people have done, are doing, will do. Took it upon himself. And not only that, you know the second part of that as well, don't you? That his righteousness, that purity of heart that belonged to him, that goodness that he lived out in human life on this earth, 
of that righteousness and wrapped it around the naked soul. So that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. That's how God can forgive sinners. Paul puts it this way in Romans 3, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Not something you earn that saves you. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Us, as well as the Ninevites, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, propitiating sin. He is turning away God's wrath. That's what that means. God's wrath was poised over you just like it was poised over Nineveh. And Jesus took that on himself to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sin. That's how he saves Old Testament believers as well as New Testament believers. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can you not love a God like this? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the marvelous good news that is the gospel. We pray that we pray that we would be a repentant people. That on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, we would be quick to confess our sin and to receive the forgiveness that you have bought for us at such great price. Cause us, Lord, to grow in our love for you, in our, in our praise for what you have done for us, and to seek to glorify you through through the obedience of our, of our minds, our hearts, our actions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.